Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. We have updated the covers on two of our DVD sets. The contents of the DVDs have not changed, so they're not new DVDs. We just updated the covers. So the God in your brain, we actually put a brain on the cover. <laughs> and we did this because during our um, various seminars and places we've gone to distribute and watching how things flow and go off the table and so forth, the, we discovered that when you have a brain on the cover, people take it better. <laughs> so we put the brain on the cover of the God in your brain. And then we updated and put a subtitle. So it's still God in your church seminar, but we've uh, changed the title from Fear to Friends, Seven levels of growing with God. So that's what we've done there, and you see the seven levels. And so those are out there if you want to get some updated covers, but the content is exactly the same, no, no changes there. And then for those of you who have been using the Remedy app, I've discovered that a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of features associated with the app. One thing you want to do with the app is you want to close it from time to time and then reopen it, because when you close it and reopen it, it will update with the edits. And I've been, you know, we've been editing uh, slowly over the last year, and so you'll get updates, and it'll give you a white screen and say, be patient as it's updating with the edits that we done. Hopefully we'll be done those edits in another month. In our notes, I've given a whole list of various features, and a lot of people didn't know that you could actually, from the app itself, if you say, oh, I love this verse, you can just tap it, hit a little icon, and you can share it. You can email it, you can text it, you can Facebook it right from the app, and uh, this, the instructions are in our notes to tell you how to do that if you'd like to do that. Okay, so uh, moving on with our lesson, we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly Rebellion and Redemption, and the title is The Great Controversy and the Early Church. And the memory verse is Acts 4.13, which says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I, I thought, well, let's, let's break this text down a little bit. Um, what do you think it meant... Um, they saw their courage, their courage. If you think of the context, who to whom were uh, Peter and John speaking? They were speaking to the rabbi, the church leadership. And what was the attitude of the leadership towards, you know, what, what, were, what were the, the leadership wanting from Peter and John? Control. Silence, huh? <laughs> they were wanting to shut him down. Uh, what were the potential consequences? Potential consequences to Peter and John for speaking out? Death. Death. I mean, yeah, imprisonment, beating. In fact, Peter was put in prison. And the angel let him out. But yeah, uh, so imprisonment, Peter. Do you think they had some fear? And if you say yes, then the question is what enabled them to overcome their fear? And if you say no, then why not? Because isn't fear a normal human reaction when you're being threatened? So either way, what enabled them to overcome their fear? Or why were they not paralyzed by fear? This is the question I want to ask this morning. What do you think enabled them to overcome their fear? Okay, so perfect love. This is a great Bible answer. There's a Bible text. Perfect love casts out all fear. They were not thinking of themselves. Oh, I like where you're going with that. They weren't thinking of themselves. And if you look at that, when you take the focus off self, neurobiologically things happen that we actually come the more fearful we get the more self-focused we get you notice the more you focus on self often the more fearful you get this happens in all kinds of circumstances i talk with performers of various kinds and when a performer goes on stage and they're thinking about themselves am i going to mess up uh, will they will they laugh at me uh am i going to am i going to stumble am i going to if i'm going to forget my lines am i going to the more they focus on that the more fearful they get 
When they actually take the focus off themselves and focus on what they have to share, uh, who, who the audience is, what they can say, so forth and so on, um, something to give to the other person, their fear level drops. So this idea of taking focus off yourself, and I was going to you know, break down what are the things that enable us to take focus off of self. One has already been said, love. When you love God or love others, love in any genuine capacity, think of the love a mother has for the child. Love a parent has for the child. They see a child in danger, something threatening the life of the child. A loving parent will, without thought, put themselves in harm's way to save that child. So love takes the focus off. I'm more concerned with that other, that one I love. I'm more concerned. Not, it's not about me. It's about saving them. So love helps take the focus off of self. Think about soldiers in combat. What do you think motivates soldiers to put themselves in harm's way? I don't know if you ever thought about it or not. It's not political correctness. They're buddies. That's right. It's that camaraderie. It's the love for the person that they have trained with and their friends. They, their friends are in harm's way. They go out. It's that, it's that bond of brotherhood. It, it's an act of love. So one thing that helps us take our focus off of ourselves is love. But there's other things. How about understanding reality in a larger context? Um, Matthew 10, 28, when Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. Understanding a, a larger reality of what's actually transpiring around you and seeing that larger reality shifts your understanding of the actual threat potential. The threat potential goes down when you actually are operating in a different plane. Now, this idea of a different perception or a different plane, a different perspective, can also be false. It can be delusional. And people who have delusions sometimes can do things without fear because they don't see the potential consequence. Their perspective and their frame of what's happening is altered. And think about the Branch Davidians. Would you consider them delusional? Or drinking the Kool-Aid in Jonestown. They had a frame of orientation that shifted their understanding of what was happening. We're going to drink the Kool-Aid. We're going to heaven took away their fear. So a shift of of mental orientation. What about trust? How about trusting someone bigger than you, more powerful than you, to handle the problem? They've got your back. Can that take away fear? Look at a child with, with their parent. So trust in someone or something bigger than yourself. If you really trust, does trust reduce fear? It does. So love, frame of orientation shift, trust in someone else. Especially if you trust based on evidence. Trust based on evidence. And I was going to say trust can be well-placed or trust can be misplaced. And having, and then the fourth thing I came up with as I was thinking about this is having a mission or a purpose for which you believe sacrificing yourself is worth it. It's bigger than you. It's worth It's worth putting your life on the line for. This is something that that you value that much. And it can also be either good or evil. Think about suicide bombers. Good or evil, but it's something bigger than you that you're you're willing to to fall on your sword for. So notice all these actions, though every one of all four of them, help take the focus off self. It's not about me, it's about the mission. I'm not important. It's it's, it's achieving the goal. Now, if you think those things through, back to Peter and John. They had courage. Why did they have courage? They had all four. All four were operational for them. They loved God and they loved others. 
They understood reality in a larger context, didn't they? They trusted Jesus with their life. And they had a mission. They had a purpose that was bigger than them. They had all four. They weren't, thus, they weren't focusing on themselves. All four things were out taking away their fear. Is that something we can tap into? All four of those things. The second part of the memory verse, that these are ordinary, unschooled men, but were able to speak truths beyond the understanding of the religious leaders and the seminary professors. How is it possible, and what does it mean for us today? How is it possible these guys could speak truths beyond the professors? What's it mean that they were able to do that? Is there any meaning that applies to our life today? They were taught by the master teacher. They were taught by the master teacher. Does that mean that we, uh, you have to be in Jesus' presence physically as they were in order to be taught by the master teacher? Pharisees were taught by the master teacher. Yeah, they learned. They were 12 years old. They, they closed their close their eyes and ears and remain purposefully deaf and blind. Yeah, and that's a good point. Jesus, not, not just at 12, but how many other yeah, times exactly. did he speak in the synagogue for all to hear? So there was many people who had the opportunity. Mary, we talked about the story of Mary and Martha, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Many people had the opportunity to be taught by Jesus, including the religious leaders. So Jesus was teaching. Some were absorbing what was being taught. Some were... Rejecting what was being taught. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's several points. One, truth is not exclusive property of, of, a, of an elite group of people, sometimes called the clergy. Amen. There are organizations that would teach that you can't know the truth. You have to go to some authority somewhere in order for them to tell you what God's truth is. But that has not ever been the position of this church. This church has always been we're a priesthood of believers and that each person has the privilege of actually studying out the truth for themselves. It's not the property of a single denomination. Well, that's well said. Thank you. She said it's not the property of a single denomination. Uh, In other words, joining an organization um, doesn't entitle you to more truth, or not being an an organizational member doesn't deny you the privilege of gaining more truth. That's a well-stated point. One of the dangers of having a wrong understanding of what the church is is that you more easily pick up the imposed law construct and fall into that category if you don't understand what the church really is. Yes, and when you have that wrong understanding, you're much more susceptible to authoritarian approaches. Yeah. So what is willing? What what is necessary? As I was looking at this, I say, what is the requirement? Is there a requirement to be able to? grow in the truth. The requirement that I came up with was a humble willingness to learn, to think, to be taught, to examine evidence, to follow the truth where it leads in a relationship with the Holy Spirit working in your mind. That seems to me the the requirement. I found this quote in the Desire of Ages as I was doing some uh, devotions this week. It's uh, page 727. Christ affirmed that his word was in itself a key. I like this idea of a key. Think, what do keys do? Yeah, so his word was in itself a key which would unlock the mystery. Do you like like unlocking mysteries? His word is a key. They unlocked the mystery to those who were prepared to receive it. It had self-commending power. Self-commending power. Hmm, think that through. And this was the secret 
of the spread of his kingdom of truth. He desired, see that self-commending power? You know what it is. It like it resonates. It makes sense. It works. It applies. You tell somebody something is true, they understand it, they comprehend it, it spreads, you see? Self-commending power. He desired Pilate to understand that only by receiving and appropriating truth could his ruined nature be reconstructed. I really like these words. Receiving, only by receiving and appropriating truth could his ruined nature be reconstructed. Is he the only one that has a ruined nature that needs reconstruction? Just Pilate or all humanity? So this is a, this is a principle that applies to all of us. The reconstructing of a ruined nature. How is, how do you understand truth to be the, the key here to unlocking this mystery that reconstructs us? Jesus said, you know the truth and the truth will set you Free. Think think information technology. I'll just put that plant that seed, work that idea along with this idea of truth reconstructing something. What do ideas or truth do when you appreciate them and and apply them to your life? Do do you change in some way as truth comes in? Splices back the DNA so it's whole again. Okay. The, the, not necessarily the physical DNA, but the, the mental DNA, the, the constructs of how we think and process, the filters that we see the world through, our understanding, our comprehension, the way we react to things. So if you think about this with me, this idea of assimilating truth, what Bible metaphors are used to teach the assimilation of truth? Eating the flesh of the sacrificial animal. Yeast. Yeast would be Assimilating the lies. Well, no, Christ talked about leaven as leaven in the flour as his kingdom. He described leaven as a positive thing that permeates this whole deal. Yeah, I also I'll talk about don't let the leaven be the leaven of the Pharisees, though. Okay, so it's a good point. Good point. Okay, so, so assimilating the yeast that works in, but that's once it's already in. So the truth was to be like the yeast changing the whole person from the inside, but that's once it's in. That's the work it's doing, right? So, but how, what's the metaphors of getting it in? Yes. Okay. So, eating the flesh, which Jesus has applied to Himself when He said, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood," which gets transferred over into the unleavened bread of the Passover, and then the communion supper of the bread and the wine. All of these metaphors are about assimilating, right? What are they actually? Obj- uh, I guess I don't know how to ask this question and make it easy to understand, so I'll just say it. They're all about eating. And what kind of a law is eating? The laws of nutrition. Are these... Pardon? The laws of sustenance. The laws of sustenance. These are design laws, though, right? These are not rules. These are not legislative enactments. If you don't eat, you don't get a fine from someone. These are physiological laws upon which life is built. This is design law stuff. The body must digest molecules that provide energy and building blocks to repair, to grow, to um, develop, yes. You become what you eat. You become what you eat. Yes, the foods you eat actually become the building blocks of your actual physical body. This is metaphor towards this internalization of truth. So think about the metaphor for a minute. What happens if you eat a meal once a week? One physical meal once a week. That's all you eat. What's going to happen? 
how about people who that's, that's their spiritual world? They go to church once a week. And we'll, we'll give them credit and we'll say that the meal they eat once a week is a healthy meal. Once a week, you eat a healthy meal once a week, but the rest of the week you don't eat. Would you, would you get physically healthy that way? This is a lot of Christian folk who go to church once a week. And the rest of the week, they don't think about anything. They don't spiritually ingest anything. When you think about eating food, food for your body, do you think of it as a legal work we must do in order to be healthy? Do you think, I can't believe all these legal requirements. I have to eat every day. What about when we think about our daily devotion time? Do we think about it as a requirement, a rule, something we have to do, a checkbox, a penance, uh, uh, some work system? Uh, well, as one person uh, said, uh, well, I don't study the Bible because that's salvation by works. I'm saved by grace. <laughs> yes. Before we leave this one meal a week thing, um, it's, it's often used, and we, I've used it, we've all used that, that analogy, and yet it's not real. Because if we're not partaking of the true food, we are partaking of food. Our environment is feeding us. Whether we're wanting to be fed or not, the world and its wickedness is feeding us. And we are being sustained in either being made whole or being torn down by what we're feeding on. And our environment is feeding us. So, with this idea about feeding, do we get an insight as to why Daniel prayed three times a day? You ever wonder why he did that? Maybe he was nurturing some some part of his interperson. Uh, can people so to the point you're making? Can people eat food, physical food that tastes good, but is not nutritious? And in fact, instead of building up the body, actually tears it down. Can they do that? So can people feed their minds something that might feel good, but actually tears down? Even at church. Even at church, she said. No, that couldn't happen, could it? No, yes. Can people ingest spiritual ingestion, partake of spiritual activities, internalize books, songs, ideas, instead of building up the character, actually tear down the character? Can that happen? Yeah. So how do you know what is good to put in your body? How do you know? How do you decide that? Well, my church has a list of rules. Ellen White had a vision, and if I just go by the vision, I'm good. I don't think about it. Or do you actually try to understand, well, how God constructed life to operate, and the foods he created, as the Bible says, the foods he created to be taken, and do you actually think it through reasonably? How do you know what's good to put in your mind? How do you know what's good to put in your mind? This is one of the reasons why I actually don't listen to certain preachers anymore. I don't, because they almost always say something ugly about God, something distorted, something warped. Remember, I would offer you the integrative evidence-based approach, harmonize it, you hear something said about God, harmonize it with what's true in experience, what's true in nature, all script, you know, scripture, all three things, and then always check it back with the life of Christ. If you're hearing something taught about God that was not true in the life of Jesus, something's probably wrong with that teaching. So we've reasoned this out through God's word this morning. We've thought it through. We've taken the metaphor. We've tried to extrapolate it to its logical, reality-based application that the metaphors of blood and wine and flesh 
and blood are not about cannibalism or actual food for the body, but they're a metaphor for internalizing truth into our characters. That's what it's really trying to tell us we have to do. Now that we've reasoned that out, here's a couple of historic quotes. This is out of Christ Triumphant 247. Those who believe present truth are to practice the truth and live the truth. They are to study the word and eat the word, which means eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of God. Or, this is uh, Fundamentals of Christian Education 378. It says, In studying the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as receiving and doing his words, which are spirit and life. And then one more, Fundamentals of Christian Education 385. How little children are educated to study the Bible as the word of God and feed upon its truth, which are flesh, which are the flesh and blood of the Son of God. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and then there's this parenthetical insert right in the middle of the Bible verse by the author that says, that is, continues to receive the words of Christ and practice them. That's what it means to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, receive his words and practice them. And and parentheses back to the quote, has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. So there's a real objective application to, are you assimilating into your thinking how reality is constructed to operate by the creator, how he designed things, and how you can live in harmony with that design? First paragraph, it says, The greatest barrier Jesus faced with his followers was their preconceived opinions. The disciples took little notice of what Jesus said if it did not fit with their own ideas of who he should be. Right up to the time of his ascension, the disciples were quizzed, were still quizzed Jesus about freeing Israel from the Romans. How do preconceived opinions create a barrier? Well, they're like a filter. If you had somebody coming up here, and, and just before they spoke to you, somebody told you, hey, that is an agent for ISIS. And you now think they're an agent for ISIS. Does it filter how you hear them? Do you hear them differently? But maybe they're not an agent for ISIS. But now you think they are. You have a preconceived opinion. Does it alter how you hear what is being said? If we have preconceived ideas about, let's say, the following three things. One, we have a preconceived idea about God's law. We have a preconceived idea about what sin is, which is God's law is a system of rules, like our rules. Sin is breaking those rules. And what's wrong about doing that is it disrespects the one who made the rules. If we have these three preconceived ideas, does it affect how we understand the plan of salvation? Does it affect how we understand God's character? Does it affect how we understand what Christ accomplished in our behalf? Those three conceived preconceived ideas right there take us down an entire path of distortion, and we can be very religious, but without any power. Some of you have come up and told me that you've had conversations in the community with people about our class, and they tell you that they don't they won't listen to anything we teach over here. That and, and why? Because some somebody that in authority has told them that, that I teach heresy. But those same people, when they have the exact same truths presented to them by somebody else, will go, have you heard about this? Have you ever? And they start teaching the very same things we're teaching, as long as it's not coming from me. <laughs> I've had several of you come and tell me that. What's, what's that tell you? There's a preconceived idea in their mind that's blocking them. Sunday's lesson, I want you to imagine you li- were living 2,000 years ago. 
Jesus has been crucified, but he's already risen from the dead. It's in those first days after his resurrection where he's appearing to more than 500 people. You're one of the 500 that Jesus has appeared to. In fact, he's appearing to you now in person. You're on the beach having breakfast with Jesus. What do you want to ask him? Think that through. Have you ever thought that through? Wow, he actually was here physically. Died, rose again. I'm on the beach. What would I want to ask him? Do you have a question you'd like to get the answer to? When are you coming back? Is it who shot JFK? It's like, who really did it? Is that the question you want to know? When are you coming back? That question uh, was asked, and he already said that he wasn't going to tell that one. (laughs) Okay. Um, How about, what can we do to hasten the day? Is there anything we can do to bring it about quicker? Can we help? How about, well, I really, what was the earth like before sin? How about, are we in a time dilation field? Peter said that with the day, with the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Is it, is it like the rest of the universe, like only six or seven days have gone by and it's like 6,000 years here on earth? Are we like in a time dilation field? I would have asked him that personally. <laughs> um, can you fix me? <laughs> Would you ask him that? Will you? Not, not Ken. Would you? Would you fix me? How about this one? What causes people, when they really get close to you in heart, mind, and character, to start glowing and radiating light? What is that? You ever wondered that? How does that work? Moses did. Stephen did. Remember? Two, two people in Scripture. The angels, every time they show up, they're doing it. Adam and Eve, before the fall... If you value what Ellen White wrote, she said before the second coming of Christ that the righteous who are saved will start having faces glow like that again before, the, before Christ appears. Like, what is that? How does that work? I, I find that interesting. Or would you simply just like to give Jesus a hug and tell him you're sorry for all he had to go through? last paragraph points out that even after the disciples had seen Jesus for themselves, they needed something else something else before they were ready to go out and evangelize the world. So they met Jesus, talked to him, they've had breakfast with him, but they still need something else. What is it they need? The Holy Spirit. That's right. Here's uh, how our church has taught about the Holy Spirit. Observe page 671. It says, the Spirit was given, the Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, this is quite profound. You think this through and think, see if you agree with this. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. That's quite profound. Do you know that stands in distinction from evangelical Christianity and what is taught in penal substitution theology? 
Penal substitution theology teaches that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ at the cross, paid for in full, and we have a complete and full atonement achieved at the cross. All we have to do is accept or reject the payment, and then we have legal pardon, and if you accept it, then God looks at you and he declares you to be righteous even though you're not. It's a fraud. Consider this battle between Christ and Satan that began in heaven. Began in heaven over Satan's jealousy of Christ and his allegations that there was no difference between Christ and, and Lucifer. It spread to earth by attacking God's character. In Old Testament times, you see the back and forth, and we've done this in our, in our seminars, back and forth as, as Satan is trying to corrupt the character of men, God is trying to, to win back, to trust human beings, keeping over the avenue for Christ to come and win the victory. We see when Jesus was born, Satan tries to have baby Jesus killed, but fails. He tempts Jesus, but fails. He kills Jesus, but fails to keep him in the grave. And Jesus rises again and destroys every obstacle in order to fix what sin did to the species human. And Jesus is our remedy for the terminal sin condition. But now that Jesus has achieved the remedy, the remedy still needs application into the hearts and minds of sinful beings. And without this application into our hearts and minds, it doesn't do us any good. It's like having pneumonia and having an antibiotic that will cure you, and it's sitting on the shelf. It's there, it exists, but it still must be ingested. We must partake to get people. And so if if you understand this reality, Christ has achieved the victory. The human species in his own person was saved as he became a real human being. He's achieved what's necessary for the salvation of man, but that achievement must be experienced in us. If that's the case, and you understand the Holy Spirit is the agency who makes effectual, as we read, in the believer what Christ has achieved, what do you think Satan's strategy is today? Keep us away from Thank you very much. Absolutely. To, to either get people to accept a false remedy which has no power, so they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, as Paul says to Timothy, or to deny the agency through which the true remedy is applied, to teach the Holy Spirit is not real, to teach there is no trinity. And this is an up-and-coming theology. It's infecting. And Adventism has its this, these roots, uh, these, these, these threads. I get emails from, from various parts of the world about people trying to advocate for the fact there's no trinity. There's a problem with the idea that there's no trinity. There's it's big problems. One, it undermines God's character. Because the Bible doesn't, doesn't say God is power, even though he's all-powerful. It says God is love. And love, functionally, is other-centered. It's giving in nature. And the minimal number of people or individuals, or, or, or I guess individuals, necessary to have genuine other-centered love is three. Two is not enough. I've seen two, and you, uh, maybe as I tell you this, you've seen it yourself, but I've seen two. You can have two people in a narcissistic infatuation with each other, where they, they are, it's all about themselves being gratified by the attentions of the other, and they, and they keep gratifying each other with each other's affirmations and affections and attentions. I've seen couples like this, and they're happy, and they're perfectly, they're perfectly functional until they have their first child. And then when they have the first child and the mother begins giving the attention to the child and the husband doesn't get the attention he had been getting, things begin to break down. There's jealousy, there's envy, and so forth. When there's this narcissistic infatuation, it's not genuine love. Genuine love is self-sacrificial. 
And it takes three. And thus the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love. God is not a singularity. Because love cannot exist in isolation. In fact, another term for a singularity? A black hole is called a singularity. Do you think about it? It's called a singular black hole. And a black hole just sucks everything in and gets nothing away. That's what it does. So love does not exist in that type of environment. So based on that, can you say that Adam and Eve did not genuinely love each other until Cain was born? Nope, there was three. Three, God was there. Yep, it was Adam, Eve, and God. There was a triune. Okay? They were indwelling, they were temples for the, where the Spirit dwelt. So it was triune. So that was, that's how it was constructed. But, but so one is this idea, and the other, though, the idea that there is no Holy Spirit also implants lies in the minds of human beings that prevents them from experiencing the application of what Christ achieved in their life. After all, if you don't believe there's a Holy Spirit, are you praying that God will pour His Spirit out in you? Are you asking for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell you if there is no Holy Spirit? So this, uh, this attack on the Holy Spirit is Satan's strategy to obstruct the application of Christ's victory into our lives in conjunction with the, the penal substitutionary model, which also obstructs because we're actually applying in that model the legal application to books in heaven rather than the character application to the hearts of men. I'm wondering how people get there when it is so clearly spelled out in Scripture that the Holy Spirit exists. The devil has done this. The enemy has done this. Yep. There's also one other type of false remedy, probably more than one other, but this one I wanted to point out as well, and that is the false spirit. That people actually accept the idea of the Holy Spirit, and they pursue the Spirit, but they pursue a spirit of, of emotionalism that actually gives a wonderful experience but brings no transformation of character. Monday talks about Pentecost. And uh, at the first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they saw, according to Scripture, what they see. Tongues of fire. Another way of saying that is beams of fire, streams of fire. How many did they see? Two. 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 Notice what happened. Did the building burn down? Were there... Were, were there clothes catching on fire? Did the whiskers burn off their beards? No. Notice that this is described as fire, but it's not combustion. Do you think there's any significance in the fact that there was two beams or streams? Well, if you think about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture with two primary character traits. What are the two character traits of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of truth and the Spirit of the Spirit of truth and love. And so these are the these are the primary streams that were being filled into the spirit temple, truth and love. And I want to go through what is it that truth burns out? It burns out lies, and what does love burn out? Fear and selfishness. Yeah, fear and selfishness. Exactly right. Do you see why we need the Holy Spirit? We need to have our minds burned out uh, out of our burn out of our minds the lies and the distortions and the preconceived ideas that are false, and we need to have fear and selfishness burned out. That's that's what that's what the Holy Spirit was doing. It says in the bottom green section, um, and we are in Monday's lesson, it says someone had, to, had, under the inspiration of Satan, consented to the death of, excuse me, some had, under the inspiration of Satan, consented to the death of Jesus, were now, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, converted to Jesus. What does this tell us about the power of God, not only to forgive the worst of sins, but also to change the hardest of hearts? And I really wanted to focus on this idea of power. Notice the power of God to change hearts. 
Let's examine this idea of power. What kinds of power are there? The most common power used in the world? Coercive power, which is some type of physical power with threats, intimidation, punishments. Now, if you think about using this type of power to gain converts, to get followers, which has happened in history and maybe still does, Will the use of this type of power to gain converts result in reliable, stable, trustworthy, unshakable followers? In other words, if you get converts by coercing and threatening, will they stay loyal and stand against any opposition? What will cause them to collapse and betray you? If they're following you because you're threatening to kill them if they don't, what causes them to betray or turn away from you? Someone more powerful. Okay. Yeah, someone more powerful. A bigger threat, a better inducement. Deeper pockets. Or there is one other thing, too. Notice it. Freedom. Love. Someone genuinely coming to love. And this could be a godly love. It could be an infatuation love. You see this all the time. People, they fall in love with a woman or fall in love with a man or whoever they fall in love with. And this, they could betray a trust because of that. So love can cause it as well. All right. So one, one power, coercive power. Now, there's another power, inducing power, the power of bribes, the power of payoffs, the power of promotions, the power of money, the power of, of advancement, the power of, in, of, of getting a bigger name and a bigger audience, this power of, of fame. If this power is used to get converts, does it result in reliable, stable, trustworthy, unshakable followers? Will people stay loyal who follow because of what they can get? in the face of any type of opposition. And if you think about people who are followers because of the inducement power, the power of inducement, what will cause them to collapse and betray you? A better offer. A better offer, number one. Absolutely. What else? A threat to their well-being, right? Coercion. Coercion. Coercion will cause them to collapse and also love. Love can win them over. All righty. How about the power of lies? Is there power in lies? Yeah, lies are powerful, absolutely. Deceit, deception. Will getting people to join you based on lies result in predictable, reliable, trustworthy outcomes? Will people stay loyal against all opposition if they're following you based on lies? What will cause them to collapse and betray you, turn against you? The truth, number one. When they come to see the truth and they've been lied to, boy, those people can really go on a vendetta. Really go on a vendetta, that's right. Um, but will threats work against someone who's following you as long as they believe the lie? Not necessarily. Think of the fanatics who believe lies, and as long as they still believe their lies, threats will not often get them to, to, to turn against them, will they? How about bribes? Will bribes and inducements work against them as long as they believe their lie? Not necessarily, no. Uh-uh. The lies, are, lies are more powerful than bribes and threats. Okay. What about love? Love may. Love is one of those iffy. It depends on the circumstances. Love still may cause someone to side with the person they love, betray the person that they believe in, even if they still believe the lie. And I'm not saying it's a mature, healthy love. I'm saying that emotional love. And then what about the power? Let's talk about this one, the power of love. To be loved and to love others genuinely more than self. Does this result in reliable, stable, trustworthy, unshakable outcomes? Will those who follow be loyal against all opposition? 
Be careful. Be careful. What will cause them to collapse? The belief in a lie. Thank you. Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. This is Satan's power. This is how we got Adam and Eve who loved God and loved Jesus. Uh, and they, they, they rebelled. Why? Because they believed a lie. If you believe the lie that your spouse is having an affair, even though they're not, but you believe they are, and you believe they're cheating on you, what happens? That relationship gets fractured. It gets broken. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. But now, what about this power? Remember, we're talking about, in the context, we're talking about Pentecost, and and we're talking about the two streams. And the two streams are the streams of? Truth and love. What about the power of truth combined with love? Truth and love. Does this, this combined power, truth and love, result in something impenetrable? You see, lies cannot defeat understood and experienced truth. They can't defeat it. And fear can never overcome love founded upon truth. They can't do it. Only those who are partakers of God's nature, the nature of truth and love, which is received through the indwelling spirit of truth and love, are transformed into beings who are unshakable. They are the sealed of God. Being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, they cannot be moved. Do you see why we need the Holy Spirit? Do you see why? And do you see why there's an attack against the Holy Spirit in theological circles today? Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph says, The priests and rulers saw that Christ was extolled above them. As the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, heard the apostles declaring that Christ had risen from the dead, they were enraged, realizing that if the apostles were allowed to preach a risen Savior and to work miracles in his name, the doctrine that there, that there would, uh, would be no resurrection would be rejected by all, and the sect of the Sadducees would soon become extinct. That's out of, uh, quoting out of Acts of the Apostles, page 78. Um, what do you, what do you, what's the dynamic you, you find happening in this passage? What, what's motivating the Sadducees here? Fear. Fear. Self-preservation. Okay. So, so an idea is being presented that is cutting across what? Their foundational belief system. A theology that they have been promoting, they have taught, they've probably written about, they've, they've preached about, they, their, whole, their whole sect is founded upon. And here is Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead, which destroys one of the fundamental pillars of their entire theological structure. How do they react? With humility, with stepping back and say we're finite beings. Uh, thank you, God, for revealing truth that we didn't understand. With repentance, with with teaching a new a, a new way of understanding, which would have been a, a quite appropriate thing to do. Instead, they wanted to destroy the message and the messenger to maintain their own way of thinking. He was undermining their economic system, and that really gets people's attention when you start messing with the money. Ah, their economic system based on that whole false construct. How about in the world today? Do we find a similar dynamic happening today? People have gone on record, written textbooks on certain forms of theology, uh, taught it from the pulpits and in the schools, and then, an, and then advancing truth comes along that challenges that. How do they respond? If they're mature, they respond with saying, thank you, God, for giving me truth I didn't understand. Truth is advancing. I want to grow in the truth. And they move forward with it. And they step back and say, you know what? I had that wrong, but there's a better way to understand it. And they begin teaching a new truth. But if they're motivated instead to pr- promote themselves rather than promote God, 
What do they do? They try to stamp out the new ideas, the new light. Have you ever experienced this? We get emails from all over the world, all over the world, literally, letters and emails from all over the world, from people who share what we teach in their classes and churches, and invariably there's individuals, I'm not going to say mobs, individuals who will try to oppose them. And often these individuals happen to be in position of authority. Positions of authority. Church authority. Yes. I didn't want to, I wasn't going to say it exactly like that. But, <laughs> but that's true. And they, and they will say things like, you're not welcome here. You can't teach here anymore. You, you, you're, you're not allowed to have a Sabbath school class here anymore. You can't take the, the pulpit when, when, the, when, when the pastor's out of town. Yep, you've preached before, but you can't preach here anymore. You know, our position has always been that we don't want to silence other people. Because our position is the truth loses nothing by close investigation. Nothing. Ask all the questions you want. Challenge our positions with whatever resources you have to challenge with. Because the more you challenge, you will help filter out ideas that are not healthy, that we want to filter out. We want to kick those ideas out. We want a better understanding. We are not infinite. We're finite. There's always more truth to advance in. So if you have a better way, challenge us on it. That's good. We're open to that. We don't want to shut people down. In fact, I've some of the people who kind of oppose what we, we teach, I've offered to them, well, why don't we have a public meeting? And you'll take 15 minutes to present an idea. I'll take 15 minutes to present my idea. We'll open it up to the audience for questions, do it in front of, front of a public audience, and, and let the audience decide which makes more sense. They would have no part of it. Why? If I'm wrong, I, I, can, I can be shown wrong. I can step back. I can accept it. Wednesday's lesson. I mean, we're cruising today, guys. Really? <laughs> First paragraph. It says, um, The disciples weren't the only ones to be confronted by the religious establishment during the, fe- early days that, during the early days of the church. Stephen, who was filled with faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people, was brought before them. His witness was so compelling, in fact, that his opponents manufactured false and incriminating stories against him for which he was dragged before the council. Is this surprising? Is it surprising the people that oppose Stephen would actually make up stories against him that were not true to undermine his reputation? In fact, it, is this not predictable? Matthew five eleven and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Matthew 24, 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Is it predictable that if you're speaking truth about God, that you'll be opposed, misrepresented? lied about. How was it that Jesus was able to predict this? Was it merely because he was in touch with his father who lives outside of the corridors of time and his father could look down into the future and see it? Is that the only reason he could predict it? Or is there another reason this was predictable? Can you think of another reason this was predictable? That, in fact, you and I can predict. Christ has already experienced it in heaven. Christ experienced it in heaven. We're part of a great controversy. If I let go of this... Stylus, can you predict what will happen? Do you have a gift of prophecy, do you? How can you predict that? It's a future event. It hasn't happened. How can you possibly predict it? If a person smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, can you predict 
what, what, what will happen to their lungs? If, if a person cheats on their spouse, can you predict what will happen in the heart, mind, and character of the cheater? Can you predict what will happen in the marriage over time? If someone violates the law of liberty in a relationship, begins coercing their significant other, can you predict what will happen? How can you predict these things? Because there are certain ways things should work by design. Yeah, certain ways things should work by design. So if you put water in the gas tank of your car, can you predict what will happen? Understanding God's laws, His design, the way He's constructed reality, you can actually predict what people will do. This is why I, I, I deal in my office with, with patients all the time, and they have certain individuals in their families who are somewhat dysfunctional. I think of a lot of my patients who have mothers who are, let's just say, controlling and manipulative. And, and they've raised, and these are adult patients now, but they still go back to their moms hoping mom will be something different than she's always been. And I say, why? Why? What did you expect would happen? Could we not predict? And we start setting up experiments. We'll do, I'll say, why don't you try doing this? And let's predict what will happen. And life becomes very, you can predict what people will do. As I tell some of my patients, scorpions sting, snakes bite, and your loved one, fill in the blank. Understand their nature. When you understand the nature of who you're dealing with, it becomes very predictable. It's on the good side, too. There are people who I know that have given their hearts to Christ and experienced the re- re- rebirth and the renewal of heart. And they're kind people. They're compassionate people. They're so, and you can call them and you can predict that they're going to help. You can predict it. It's predictable. You know those people, right? Yeah. It is predictable that selfish people will exploit others. It's predictable that when fear increases... For those who don't have love in their hearts, that they will become more selfish. Do you remember what happened in New Orleans after Katrina? Do you remember? Remember what happened? What do you think would happen in our city here in Chattanooga if the infrastructure breaks down? There's no power, there's no water, no electricity, no gasoline. There's shortages, food shortages. What do you think is going to happen here? You think the guns will come out? Now, some people, you'll see both sides of it. You will see both because there are people of both natures in our community. You will see people sacrificially helping others in a situation like that. You'll see it. You'll see beautiful acts of love and self-sacrifice. You will also see people taking advantage for themselves, exploiting. You'll see both, won't you? That actually happened uh, several years after Katrina. Nashville flooded, worst flooding in 150 years, and you didn't see wild, random uh, acts of looting. You saw more more of the latter. You saw Christians helping their neighbors and, and rebuilding, cleaning up. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. Predictable. Yeah. Bottom green section, it says, sometimes we see the good that arises from what's obviously evil. That's great. What do we do, though, when we don't see any good arise from evil? In fact, we only, only more evil. That should not change us. We should be true, though every man be false. Why? 
Because that's who we are. Okay, I like it. I like it. Yes, that's exactly true. No disputes with that at all. Can we, can we, can we take that idea and extrapolate it up into a bigger reality? You're exactly right. We want to be true to ourselves. We, we want to be faithful. We want to, but why do we want to live that way? Why? There's a reason behind it. Because it is the right thing to do. Why is it, why is it right? You're exactly, what makes it right? Design. Design law. Right. So if it's design law, it would be like this. We see everybody in our community smoking, and they're smoking heavily. And they're all coughing and getting sick, and they're getting worse. Or we see everybody smoking in the beginning, and they all seem happy, and they don't seem to have any consequence at all. And they're all claiming they feel better. They're more alert. Or they're smoking marijuana, and they claim to feel better. They just, it just brings them euphoria. They're happier people because they're smoking marijuana. Everybody's doing it, and they're all claiming how good it is. They don't seem to, nobody's getting arrested. No prosecutions. Do you look at that and go, well, oh, I, I see only good. Only good is coming. Or do you go, wait, give it time. Give it time. I don't care if everybody's doing it. I don't care if I don't see any bad right now. I can't, I don't have the MRI to look inside their lungs. I can't see the tumors. I can't see the bad. But does that mean bad isn't happening? See, when you understand the nature and character of sin, and this is what most people don't get because of the penal substitution theology that has blinded them to make them think that sin is simply a broken rules that are in a ledger that requires judicial action, instead of understanding that every violation of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for them to sin again, warps their character, sears their conscience, hardens their heart, that every act of evil is destructive to the perpetrator of evil. When you see that reality, you'll never get caught into this question of, we don't, we don't, we only see good, we don't see evil coming. There's always evil from evil. To say there's not evil from evil would be like saying that death results in better life, or that disease brings better health, or that sewage brings better water. That's what they're saying when they say evil results in good. It never results in good. It's not possible in God's universe for it to result in good. When you understand how reality works, it is possible for us to be deceived and to have an appearance of something good, like a person who does their cocaine, and while they're doing cocaine, they feel so good, they think it's wonderful, and they'll tell you it's not bad at all. It's a wonderful thing. Or the person who cheats on their spouse, and they're thrilled with it, and they think it's a wonderful thing. But it's a lie. It's a deception. Yes. There's the concept or the statements that we've, we've read that um, after the earth is made new and, and evil has been done away with, that mankind will be closer to the Creator than if he had never sinned. And people portray that as being a good that has come out of evil. And yet... Yeah, that, 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 that good has not come out of evil. That good has come out of the goodness of God who has overcome evil. It didn't come from the evil. It came from the goodness of God who confronted, overcame, and destroyed the evil. So for them to construct that as that good came out of the evil is a lie. It didn't come out of the evil. It's the correct understanding of the nature of sin that will prevent it from happening again. It's, yes. It's an accurate understanding of what real evil is that prevents, uh, prevents its return. Exactly. It really isn't good from evil. It is never good coming out of evil. There is good coming from God who is good. Yeah, but that, that's a great, subtle little way people can phrase things to try to make it appear. It's a great point, Wendell. Any other closing comments? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. Always good. 
We thank you for the resources you have poured out in Jesus Christ, the truth, which sets us free. The Holy Spirit, which takes all that Christ has achieved, the truth and the love of God, and reproduces it in our hearts. And we ask for your Spirit to be poured out now to burn out any lies, distortions, misunderstandings in our own understanding of you and, and the reality in which you've constructed and and burn out the fear and the selfishness and establish us as true citizens of heaven who um, operate upon the principles of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.